Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You may not always like his opinion, but you can bet he'll have one. Welcome to The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Bonjour, mes amis. Might as well start now. Philippe Couillard wants us uh, to have a national conversation on the uh, Constitution so that Quebec can join. Couillard is a, is a Federalist. But you've got to know the Separatists love this. We'll talk a bit about that tomorrow. I just finished, about 20 minutes ago, finished uh, an interview with the Federal Minister of Health, Jane Philpott, on the issue of opioids and chronic pain patients. And uh, we'll play that for you in about an hour's time. It was very direct, as you will hear, because my interest is not the government. My interest is the million to a million and a half chronic pain patients in this country who are suffering because, as I suggested to the minister, governments are abandoning them. And these pain patients, the ones I've talked to, consider suicide. And I asked the minister, you're a doctor. You know the Hippocratic Oath, the first line, first do no harm. If these patients commit suicide, because they're arbitrarily being removed from their opioids, because doctors are afraid of government. How will that make you feel? So you want to listen to the interview. We'll also be speaking with Catherine. She was with us uh, last Sunday. She's the chronic pain patient who told us about the time she was at the hospital not long ago, and she was screaming in agony with her father asking the uh, medical personnel at the nurse's station to provide her with some relief, and they just closed the door so you couldn't hear her scream that loudly. It's not because they're addicted to opioids. It's because they're addicted to living without pain or with as little pain as possible. And what governments are doing is they're taking information that pertains to drug addicts, generic drug addicts, who buy their drugs from drug dealers on the street, and they're massaging that information and applying it to chronic pain patients. And the final analysis that you see here or read. And so it looks as though the chronic pain patient is the addict. When all the chronic pain patient is, is an addict to try to live without pain. That, by the way, is a human right. So you'll hear what the minister and I talked about. Carla Homolka volunteering at her children's school in Quebec City. How deplorable, how disgusting, how atrocious. What an indictment of our system. Feel sorry for her children, never feel sorry for her. What was Mulcair thinking? 
And then her partner in crime, Bernardo, doing his 25 years, 25 years without the opportunity of parole, he'll have an opportunity to petition for patrol in a matter, in a, parole in just a matter of months. And you know he's going to do it. He's going to do it because they've all done it before him, like Clifford Olson. He made it a habit, the child serial killer from British Columbia. Olson was da- considered so dangerous, so dangerous, that he wasn't allowed out of his cell for more than an hour a day. That's the punishment that he had. But he was so dangerous, he wasn't allowed out of his cell. But what they did was they leased a private jet to fly him from his prison in Saskatchewan to a Section 745 parole opportunity hearing in British Columbia. The government did that. They leased a private jet to fly the convicted child serial killer from his prison to the 745 parole opportunity hearing in Vancouver. Meanwhile, Sharon Rosenfeld, the mother of one of his victims, was told by the government, you have to make your own way to Vancouver. We're not paying for you. We'll pay for the guy who murdered your child, your child and other children. We'll, we'll lease a jet for him. But you, you just have to pay your own way to Vancouver. Canadian Police Association took care of that for Sharon. I have a tremendous amount of respect for my guest, Tim Danson. He's, as you no doubt by now know, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, Doug and Donna and Debbie, Doug and Donna French and Debbie Mahaffey. And uh, I've known Tim for a long, long time. And we, uh, I, I guess we were kind of partners on the Christopher Stevenson case. Tim, but uh, you, you've taken such wonderful care of crime victims' families for such a long period of time. And I know the French and Mahaffey families look to you for their assurance that the very best is going to be dragged out of a legal system that is quite often reluctant to offer its best. And uh, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Where do we begin? Do we begin with Homolka and volunteering at her children's school? I feel sorry for those kids. Or do we begin with uh, Bernardo being eligible for a parole hearing? Well, in one sense, they're they're really linked because at the time that uh, I'm dealing with the Frenches and the Mahaffeys getting ready for um, Paul Bernardo's parole hearing, which tentatively is targeted for the end of August, whether it proceeds on that day, I don't know, because there was another date in, in March that we were to proceed on, and he, he put it off. Um, and so if you, could, if you could imagine the juxtaposition with the families of preparing victim impact statements and dealing with some of the legal issues, which I'll, I'll bring to your attention in a moment for Bernardo. And then at the same time, there's these stories of Carla Homoka you know, living a relatively normal life and volunteering at a you know, at the school and being in the proximity of other children. And it, it, it really, as Doug put it, it's like, uh, you know, a kick in the gut. Uh, very, very difficult to um, to come to grips with that uh, when you know that um, Carla Homoka should have been in the prisoner's box with Paul Bernardo, and she too should be serving a life sentence uh, rather than uh, having a, a normal life and, and volunteering at a, at a school. Um you know, this is an individual who um, uh, who got away with murder. And so when I hear people, and like the leader of the NDP party, Mr. Mulcair, say that, uh, you know, she's paid her debt to society and, and she should be forgiven and given a second chance, uh, my first response is, is that Carla Homoka did not pay a debt to society. What she did through deceit and deception and manipulation 
is that she was able to orchestrate a plea resolution, and there were strict conditions to that uh, plea resolution. That is that she be completely honest and that there be no material omissions. And if she breached that, the plea bargain would be off, and she would be in the witness, it would be in the prisoner's box with Paul Bernardo. And as you know, she did breach uh, her plea resolution. When the videotapes were found, um, uh, we discovered that there was a, a further victim, which is known as Jane Doe, who I also represented. And that was a material breach of the plea resolution. And unfortunately, the powers to be uh, chose not to uh, pull the deal and, uh, and, and, and kind of backed her on, on that particular argument. But the fact of the matter is, when you put all that together, um, she didn't pay her debt to society. She got away with murder. And um, with respect to uh, uh, you know, forgiveness, I, I say, well, first of all, for someone who unfortunately has seen the videotapes as much as I have and know exactly what she did, and then 12 years later in uh, Joliet when we were just before she was released and we were trying to uh, um, uh, impose post-conditions, sentence conditions on her under the 810 of the criminal code, uh, which we were successful with, but it was reversed on appeal, unfortunately, and that's why she has no conditions on her whatsoever. But it was during that period of time when the court was considering uh, you know, whether she was a risk to society that we should have post-sentence conditions on her, that she chose to stare me down. I mean, that's, that's, her, that's, that's the kind of person she is. And it was um, pretty shocking at the time, but more shocking for me, because we were just a few feet from each other, and this was a pretty intense stare-down, which I certainly wasn't going to break when I realized she had the audacity to do it. So we are looking at, at the whites of each other's eyes, as the expression goes. And this is what I saw. The same evilness uh, and emptiness in her eyes uh, is exactly what you see in the videotapes you know, 12 you know, years earlier. And so she hadn't changed at all. I mean, she is a psychopath, and once a psychopath, always a psychopath. And we know there's no cure for psychopathy. Now, she's certainly a complicated individual, uh, but we don't know exactly what her triggers may be. But there is no doubt in my mind that she represents a serious threat to public safety. And if I was a parent at that school and had my children being supervised or being in close proximity to her, I would be alarmed. And, but on the forgiveness point, I say this. First of all, I could never forgive someone who did the unspeakable crimes that she did. And as I say, I do not believe that she's rehabilitated. And given certain circumstances, I think she would do it again. But truly, you have to have um, true and genuine remorse. It has to be at least a prerequisite for forgiveness. And Carla Homolka has none. She hasn't demonstrated a scintilla of remorse or contrition. And as a psychopath, she's not capable of it. So I, took, uh, I take a very different view than Mr. Malkar. It, it's it's sad almost that uh, Tom Mulcair would say what he did. It's sad to uh, recognize that there are people in this country who will forgive evil and will say things like, "Well, we took her freedom away." I've heard that as well, and uh, and, and and it's it's awful that in that school, uh, Tim, there was one parent, I believe, who specifically challenged the school administration for allowing. Homolka to volunteer at the school, and he's the one who was thrown out of school by the administration. Not her, but the parent who found it absolutely uh, abominable that she would be there. He's the one who was expelled from the school. 
Now, fortunately, uh, I understand from media reports that uh, as a result of the public's outrage um, and, and other parents' outrage, uh, they've walked it back and, and, and have made it clear that they're not going to allow her to you know, volunteer and supervise kids. Right, but that was but, their that was their immediate that was their immediate response was to exactly. reward her and to punish him. Yeah, I know it's it's uh, it's 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 very very disturbing. It is, and so, but you know, there's another issue which I think is important that uh, uh, needs to be discussed. Tim, can I take a quick break and we'll talk about that in a minute? Certainly, that'll be all right. Tim Danson is with me. He's the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, Doug and Donna French and uh, Debbie Mahaffey and uh, has done such a splendid job of taking care of them legally and being their friend throughout these uh, horrific times. And once again, the families are visited upon by Bernardo, who will have his parole hearing, and Homolka. You know that part of the story. We'll talk more with Tim Danson about uh, about what's going on and what's likely to happen with uh, with Bernardo. Legal points right after this. Taking on the Titans, standing up for the little guy. It's the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You can email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com and you follow me on Twitter at the Roy Green Show. Tweet. Your thoughts, and I'll read as many as I can on the air. Tim Danson is my guest, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, has been there for them since uh, the very beginning, and uh, as you've been hearing, is not very highly thought of by Carla Homolka, which is a badge of, badge of distinction for for Tim. Um, so, so, Tim, you were about to explain something to us about legalities, I, I think, that had yeah, to do with her. With, with, well, with the, with the parole hearing coming up... Um, it's important uh, for people to understand that when you hit, actually, I think it's when you hit 23 years, uh, you're eligible for day parole, and then when you hit 25 years, um, it's uh, full parole. So we're we're at the uh, day parole stage right now, and um, and you you go before the parole board, and there's normal you know considerations that the parole board looks at for normal parole. But remember, Paul Bernardo has also been designated a dangerous offender. And that is a a very high level, extreme level of dangerousness that's uh, um, uh, significant. It's a a very specific uh, designation. And it's my opinion that before Paul Bernardo is a, the parole board considers him for parole in in the traditional sense, they must first deal with his dangerous offender designation. And that Paul Bernardo um, uh, would have to come forward with very compelling evidence to displace the previous finding of, of being a dangerous offender. Now, people who have a different view than mine say that um, you know that's that's just academic, Tim, because uh, the parole board is going to consider both dangerous offender and the regular parole. But I, I think, in principle, there's a big distinction, and we ought not to conflate the two. And so, therefore, I think before Paul Bernardo's even considered at all for, per, for parole, legally, uh, we should be dealing with his dangerous offender designation. And I also feel that uh, the evidence that Paul Bernardo puts forward uh, to s- tell the parole board that he's no longer a dangerous offender and that he's eligible for parole should be open to public scrutiny. Um, uh, it's remarkable to me that Paul Bernardo and other people convicted of first-degree murder who are asking for a public remedy to be reintegrated back into society are able to rely on privacy 
legislation uh, to prevent the public from seeing that evidence. Um, and yet, in my view, it really is a public remedy, and it's uh, and parole hearings and dangerous offender applications before the parole board as well um, are are public. So I think that uh, the public has a right to know. The public has a right to know all the evidence that he's relying upon. And I think we need to deal with his dangerous offender designation first before we consider anything else. You know, I remember a number of years ago, I was contacted by a gentleman who identified himself as a guard at Kingston Prison. And uh, he wouldn't give me too much information because he just didn't want to be identified, uh, specifically that I'd know his name and his, you know, his history there. But he was a guard, and uh, he suggested to me that Bernardo was having conjugal visits and so we call Correctional Service Canada, and what you just said was underscored by, by what we heard in response from Correctional Service Canada. When I asked whether or not Bernardo was having conjugal visits, they said, Mr. Bernardo, Mr. Bernardo has his rights to privacy like any other Canadian citizen, and we will not tell you what's going on in his life. Yeah, the, the way they use, in my opinion, um, uh, you know, the, the Corrections Canada and the Parole Board rely upon uh, privacy legislation not to disclose all kinds of information. And I cannot believe that they really care about the likes of uh, Paul Bernardo uh, or Clifford Olson. Uh, I believe that they hide behind the privacy legislation so they themselves cannot be uh, held to account. And it really makes no sense because the parole system is simply uh, an extension of the criminal justice system and it's an extension of the sentence, uh, which, as we all know, all of that is public and transparent. Um, we're actually going to be joining. Um, uh, there's an existing case that I'm, I, I have before the Federal Court of Canada uh, dealing with uh, the, the family of Police Constable Michael Sweet. He was murdered by Craig Monroe 35 years right, ago. Right. I spoke with his widow not long ago. Yeah. And, and so we're actually in federal court to challenge these privacy legislations, because even under the privacy legislation, there is a legal balance between the privacy of the offender, mm-hmm. and in these cases, uh, murderers, and in Paul Bernardo's case, it's, 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 he's in a dimension all to himself, and, uh, and the public interest. And I, I don't understand how uh, the, the interest of an individual murderer, who seems to have more rights after he's been convicted than he did when he had the presumption of innocence, right. trumps the, the rights of victims and the public. And so I, I, I just wanted to bring okay. to attention that we actually have that in federal court. Tim, I, I, I'm sorry, but I have, to, I have to jump in because we have a satellite break. It's going to cut me off whether I want it to or not. <laughs> Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. And thanks so much for what you do for everybody in this country, particularly for Doug and Donna and Debbie. Thank you very much. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Tim Danson, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families. Joe Warmington from The Sun when we come back.